Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy is an educational and entertainment podcast created and produced by Anna Zarov and Olivia Horrigan. If you would like to know more about our show, check out our website at mythvsmedpod.com and join our email list. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Now let's get on to the episode. Ever wonder how opioid drugs are managed in the hospital? Find out on this week's episode of Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy. I'm Anna. And I'm Olivia. And we're medical students at the University of Michigan. Join us as we unpack the next episode of one of our favorite medical dramas, Grey's Anatomy. It's a beautiful day to learn what is myth and what is medicine. Disclaimer. Our thoughts and opinions may not reflect those of the University of Michigan hospital system or the University of Michigan Medical School and are not intended to be used in place of medical advice. We are currently in training and are not qualified to provide medical advice. Please consult your doctor for medical management or further questions. All right. Hey, Anna. How are you doing? Yay. We're back. I'm good. What's new with you? Nothing much. I mean, yesterday we were both at our friend's place when we won the national championship. Michigan, if you guys didn't know, football champions. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, that was super fun. And first time in, I think, around 20 years that we've won. 25, I'm pretty sure. It's 25. So obviously we're good luck charms in this case. You know, I'm not saying that that we did this, but (laughs) Michigan hadn't beat Ohio State in like eight years. And then we came here and they have won every year that we've been here since. It's true. It's true. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) What else have you been up to? You know, not much. It's been crazy times getting into 2024, getting ready to start some new rotations. Oh, yes. I'm on my step studies right now so I have exams to take still so I've just been doing that love to see it (laughs) all right well should we get started on this next episode of Grey's Anatomy I think we should this is a good one well so Olivia go ahead and give us our summary I would love to. So Meredith is struggling to manage her mother's affairs on top of other adult responsibilities she has. On top of that, she may be sued for making a big mistake in a heart surgery. Meanwhile, George finds a left-behind object in a patient from a previous surgery, and Christina is tasked with identifying who the culprit was. Alex has little patience for his patient, who is admitted for chronic pain. Izzy throws an out-of-control party for her boyfriend at Meredith's house, but decides that her patients at the hospital have to come first. Finally, Christina and Burke have a special moment in the call room while Bailey catches Meredith and Derek having sneaky car sex. (laughs) Sneaky car sex, I think, is the funniest thing that's ever come out of your mouth. (laughs) It's going to be a tough one to beat. I'll say that. I love it. This is honestly the most fun part for us because we've watched these episodes separately and now we get to come together and actually talk about it. So it's like we're gossiping about the episode. (laughs) It really is, especially I feel like in all of our quick catches where we're like, did you notice this? Oh my God. (laughs) So speaking of quick catches... What's your first one that you have for us? Funnily enough, because we always see Dr. Burke doing surgeries that he's not supposed to. In this episode, we meet Mrs. Drake, who is having a laparoscopic surgery done on her lungs. And this surgery is being done by Richard and Bailey, who are general surgeons, while really this surgery should have been done by a cardiothoracic surgeon. So... I don't know what's going on here because apparently Burke is not only doing surgeries that he shouldn't be doing, but he's also not doing the surgeries that he should be doing. Apparently not. Burke, like you said, is all over the hospital, just not in the right places. Never in the right places. So speaking of Mrs. Drake, actually, and this lung surgery that she had, Richard says that she had the surgery back in 1999, the original surgery. (laughs) When Christina is asked to look at the paperwork, the paperwork says the surgery date was October 18th, 2000. So not 99. So almost two years after 99. Almost two years. Wasn't even early 2000. (laughs) It wasn't. (laughs) I love it. Something that I noticed Going back to our surgical etiquette mistakes, we see Meredith at the beginning of this episode in heart surgery with Burke, and she, once again, is not wearing goggles. Meredith, what are you doing to us? But meanwhile, (laughs) who does have the goggles on? Does Burke finally have goggles? He does finally have goggles. Thank gosh. (laughs) As his hands are on a human heart, he finally put goggles on his eyes. It's about damn time. (laughs) Okay, so speaking of this surgery, actually, and Meredith, in this episode, she's basically super sleep deprived. I wrote down the quote, I haven't slept in 48 hours. I have my first shot at heart surgery this morning. And I wrote, ma'am, don't do that. Don't. Please don't (laughs) do that to yourself. You haven't slept in 48 hours and you're going to go do heart surgery? That feels like just a bad idea. Yes, yes. Look. 
I haven't slept in 48 hours. I'm getting my first shot at heart surgery this morning. I'm missing rounds. Are you sure there isn't anybody here or the attorney? I mean, do I really have to be the one to handle it? Anyways, my question for you. So in this surgery, she nods off while she's holding the heart. Anna, have you ever had this happen to you? Oh, so I don't know if I've ever necessarily closed my eyes because, in fact, I pride myself in being able to sleep with my eyes open in the hospital. Oh, yes? (laughs) Like, not necessarily in surgery, but definitely on rounds. There have been times where I'm doing the exact thing that Meredith is doing there. (laughs) The, like, fully physically nodding off, and then you feel yourself jump back into your body, and you're like, no, I'm awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Have you ever had a time like that? Oh, I do remember. This was, I think this was during my OB-GYN rotation and I was manipulating the uterus. When you're manipulating Mm -hmm. the uterus, you just have a tool and you literally stay in the same exact spot. You do not move. And they gave me a stool to sit on. So what else was I supposed to do other than take just a couple more seconds to blink my eyes than than I would normally do? <laughs> Anyways, that was my question for you. All right. What, what other quick catches did you have for this episode? One that I really liked that I found to be relatable and a great question was Izzy talking to her patient who had a small bowel obstruction. <laughs> and one of the things that you're looking for after a small bowel obstruction is this person now able to pass gas, keep fluid down, and eventually do they have a bowel movement? And Izzy comes in and she's like, all right, time for my favorite question. Have you pooped? <laughs> and I was like, you know, that really is our favorite question for these it kinds is. of patients. It is. And then we see the patient at the end of the episode when he finally does poop. And he's like, Izzy, I pooped. And I did like, it. Yeah. They're so excited. <laughs> and I was like, the excitement is real. These patients are so excited to get out of the hospital and tell us that they pooped that I don't think I've ever seen anyone want to poop as much in their entire life as I have seen these patients. Because a lot of times that's what's keeping the patient there is we're just waiting for yeah. them to have, we call it return of bowel function. So having them actually go poop. And yeah. when I was on my colorectal surgery rotation, this is the question I would ask literally every single one of my patients after surgery. So it was, again, very relatable. Love it. All right, so can we talk a little bit about Burke and Christina in this episode, please? please. So if you guys remember in last episode, Christina had this big meltdown over a patient that she had. Burke was treating her kind of awfully. And then we get to this episode and Burke starts the episode off by casually walking up to Christina, drinking his coffee, and then setting a little coffee down for her because he had gotten her coffee. He looked so proud of himself. But I'm so confused. I'm like, is he doing this because he feels bad for how he treated her? Is he doing this because they're having a moment? I don't know. Well, and she looks up at him and she looks at the coffee and she's so confused. And Brooke goes, it's just coffee. She's like, is this a trick? (laughs) Is this a trick? I don't know. I feel like Burke and Christina throughout everything that we've seen them in so far communicate fully non-verbally like even just in the last episode where we see after all of this trauma that he puts christina through and then they end up in the stairwell together and they share this special moment where she's crying and they just look at each other yeah clearly there's some intimacy here but i'm not even actually convinced there is but it's confusing intimacy i don't know how i would describe it to be honest. Well, if I was Christina, I would be like, is he flirting with me? Is he trying to have this power struggle with me? Is he trying to be a good boss? The signals are all over the place. They're so wild. They're so crossed. I don't know what is happening. And then eventually, I guess, we find out that it was some kind of romantic intimacy, some type of thing. Because what happens at the end of the episode, Anna? This is kind of wild, to be honest. (laughs) First of all, Burke starts stripping in the call room. Apparently, he didn't lock the door to change in the call room. And Christina just walks in. She walked in, turned around, and immediately locked the door. So Walks in, sees him shirtless. Then they have another classic Christina Burke stare down. They do. They do. Before they start making out. Yeah. Yeah. And we can all assume what happens next. I was honestly so thrown by this because I feel like their relationship just escalated in one single episode. Agreed. I was not expecting it. I mean, I was expecting it because I've seen it before. (laughs) No, really? No, I was gonna say that I was waiting for this to happen because I've seen it before. And so I feel like during this rewatch in the last couple episodes, I've been looking for the signs. Looking for the signs. (laughs) But they haven't totally been there as much as I expected them to be. (laughs) For some reason, I remembered there being build up to their relationship. And actually, it was, here's a coffee, now we're having sex. Yes, yes. So we'll see how that progresses throughout the rest of the show. 
But yeah. in terms of this episode in particular, I wanted to touch on the electronic medical records that we have now. And then back in 2005, when the show takes place, how they use paper records. I was going to say, there was no electronic medical records then. No, and it's so crazy because Richard tells Christina to go and look for these records. And so usually that's so easy. We, we just go onto our electronic medical record. We look at the patient's chart. We say, okay, here's the surgery. And it brings up a whole list of the providers. It brings up all the details of the surgery. It has literally yeah. everything. And in this case, for Christina, it just shows her looking through, like, file cabinets and file cabinets of records. I was going to say, it was kind of mind-blowing. I mean, I've never seen a system of paper medical records. And there's Mm -hmm. literally this room with just all these file cabinets and Mm -hmm. boxes. And you have to sort through everything. Mm -hmm. So that was fun to watch. And then there was another instance this episode that is very different today than it was back in the episode in terms of kind of looking through patients' charts. Yeah, this is actually a really nice transition, I think, to our first topic, which is going to be the management of patients using opioid drugs. And we see Alex taking care of this patient who has pretty severe chronic pain and is coming to the hospital in search of opioids. And something that I was thinking about is the way that we are able to track the usage of what we call controlled substances or drugs that might have potential for addiction or abuse. Mm -hmm. Basically, now we use the electronic medical record in order to keep track of the drugs or we can look at their chart and we can see, oh, they have received X amount of different drugs from different places, who's prescribed them, Mm -hmm. their entire prescription history. And this is not something that could have been done without the electronic medical record when this episode was filmed. And we'll talk a little bit more about this and the progression over time. Yeah. So we see this patient come into the hospital and we see Derek and Alex going to see him. Starting off, before we really get into it, I have a couple of quick catches that were related to this case that I wanted to talk about. Lay it on me. Okay, so the first one that I just thought was silly was, once again, the fact that the doctors in Grey's Anatomy seem to treat every patient regardless of what the indication is <laughs> and what department they're in. I don't know why Alex and Derek went to see this patient in the first place. The only thing I could come up with was they do say that he has some spinal issues that are causing his pain. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe it was like a surgical consult. Oh, uh, possibly. I feel like it's decided before we even meet this patient that this patient is not a surgical candidate at this time. Like, yeah. It was <laughs> never discussed that he might be having surgery. And so I don't know why this neurosurgery team has been chosen to manage his pain throughout this episode. It's a wonderful question that I think we will be asking throughout the entirety of this show. (laughs) Definitely. And then my other one was towards the end of the episode, this patient becomes more aggressive and ends up taking a fall and having a subdural hemorrhage, which is a type of bleeding in your brain. And Derek shows us the imaging and asks Alex and Izzy what they see. And they say, oh, it's a subdural hemorrhage with midline shift. Mm -hmm. And they show us this image. And I don't know about you, Olivia, but I couldn't find any hemorrhage. I could not see anything. (laughs) And I was so happy that you brought it up because I paused this for at least five minutes. It's like, I don't see anything. Am I supposed to be seeing something? Well, I was going to say, that's the other thing is it is a very strange cross-section of the brain. It is. I have it is. spent so much time looking at it and I can't figure out where in the brain it would even be. There, like, it's, Everything's misaligned. It's very confusing. <laughs> agreed. I actually asked one of my friends who works in neurosurgery to show this picture to some of the surgeons to see if they could find anything. So I sent her a screenshot and it had the subtitles on it. And so the surgeon said, well, there are the words subdural bleed, but I think that's the closest you get to having a subdural hemorrhage on that picture. But anyway, let's get into the real topic, which is going to be the management of patients with opioid drugs. And what we learn is that this man had a lumbar fusion. So he has some issues with his spine that are causing him pretty significant chronic pain. And as they're taking care of him, he's kind of moaning and groaning. And Alex says, okay, let's get you started on some medication. And this man says, oh, I'm allergic to aspirins and NSAIDs. So, for instance, Advil or ibuprofen. Kind of like first-line pain management options that we have for patients. And this patient says right away, oh, I'm allergic to all of those. I need 
a stronger drug. Mm-hmm. I need Dilaudid, and he gives some doses, and he says what he wants. Mm-hmm. And Alex realizes pretty quickly that this patient has come to the hospital with the intent of getting opioid drugs for treatment of his pain. And Alex says to Derek as they're walking out of the room, this guy is a junkie. He is showing all of the signs of opioid addiction. And he describes some of these characteristics. This patient is giving an overly detailed description of his pain. He knows all about all the different drugs and dosing. We also see as he's meeting the patient, it shows his arms and he has track marks on his arms. So when I worked in the emergency room back at Cincinnati, I actually worked a lot with substance use patients and mm-hmm. something that we would term this and that I think is a, a generally well-known term is drug-seeking behavior. And so this is very yeah. characteristic of a patient with drug-seeking behavior who is coming to the hospital with the intent of receiving some kind of drug. And right. that was what makes it really tough. And that's kind of where we run into the ethical dilemmas in this case. Well, and Derek says to Alex at this point, junkie or not, you still have to treat his pain as if it were real. And so he's yeah. coming to the hospital because he really needs these medications in order to feel comfortable. He's a, a Delilah junkie. So what do you do? Well, you, you check the database for history, refer to a program, and discharge. After you give him something. I did. That's exactly what he wants. Junkie or not, you still have to treat his pain as if it were real. Why? It's the first rule in pain management. Always err on the side of caution. He's in our care. He says he's in pain. Start a central line. His veins are shot. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of where we talk about the electronic medical record now. So like Olivia said, when a patient comes into the ED and is displaying this kind of drug-seeking behavior, we can look at their chart. Whereas in this case, Alex also goes and starts digging through files. Mm -hmm. He says to Derek what he found is he's been in seven hospitals in the last four months, which is, I think, something common we see in patients who do display this drug-seeking behavior is they will go to as many hospitals as they can get themselves admitted to because they can basically go from hospital to hospital and keep getting the same drugs. Yeah. What I would really like to talk about is the history of opioid prescription and how the management of pain has changed over time because this episode was recorded in 2005 and this was a really key time in the development of opioid drugs and in the changing of attitudes about them. Absolutely. Basically, what I have learned is that Before 1914, opioids were used for everything for pain. I read from one source, anything from diarrhea to toothache, you might (laughs) be prescribed opioids. So in 1914, the Harrison Narcotic Control Act was passed in response to a surge in street heroin and an Mm -hmm. increased iatrogenic morphine dependence. And what does iatrogenic mean, Anna? That's a great question. Iatrogenic basically means you are taking it yourself. It's something that is not naturally produced by your body. And it's usually a sequelae of being in the medical system. It's usually from the hospital or from doctors prescribing it to them. Correct. So after this act was passed, basically from the 1920s through the 1950s, opioids were highly avoided because of the new understanding of the risk of addiction and abuse. This large stigma arised around pain, where the attitude existed that people should just get over their pain. And even for pretty severe post-operative cases, cancer patients, a lot of these patients were basically told that they just needed to deal with their pain. And... This led to the development of a lot of new studies later, mostly in the 70s and 80s. And there were several studies that showed that patients were just severely undertreated for pain, especially for post-operative patients. Yeah. And then there started to be this development of organizations arguing that pain is a really important quality that we need to be looking at in any given patient. And so the American Pain Society in 1995 decided that they were going to start calling pain the fifth vital sign. So we look at vital signs in the hospital, like blood pressure and heart rate and temperature. And the American Pain Society basically said the level of pain that you're experiencing should be measured just as much as all of those other things that we can measure. Yeah. I feel like that was a big turning point in the recognition of patient's pain because I feel like up to this point, like you had said, it was really stigmatized. They weren't really Mm -hmm. supposed to talk about their pain. And if they were having pain, they were told, you know, go take a Tylenol, go take some Advil, you'll be fine for patients that were undergoing these big procedures or were cancer patients or had big traumatic injuries. And obviously in that standpoint, Advil usually isn't going to cut it. Right. And the reality is opioids were initially developed as 
drugs for pain management and they really are the best pain control drugs we have Mm -hmm. the reason that people use them and the reason that they do have potential for abuse is that they're really good drugs they work they they do take away pain and so the joint commission then published standards for pain management in 2000 and these standards basically explained that physicians are mandated to provide adequate pain control Mm -hmm. and that not prescribing the proper drugs for pain control is considered inhumane. And so when this happened, there was a huge surge in opioid prescriptions. Mm -hmm. Hospitals were worried that if they didn't meet these standards from the Joint Commission, that they wouldn't receive federal funds for healthcare and that they wouldn't be able to stay open. And so you see this huge increase in prescribed opioids. I was going to say, you can see such a big swing from the early 1900s where they were using them for everything, then to the mid-1900s where they were saying, no, absolutely not, we're not using it, Mm -hmm. they're dangerous, it's become a problem. Now to back to 2000, they say, you know what, it's inhumane not to treat the pain, let's load them up with opioids again. So they're really going back and forth, and they, it's, I think it's evident that it's hard to find a middle ground on this topic, which we'll kind of get it to as we go is. along. And you see this huge push and pull between, do we use them, do we not use them? Mm-hmm. They're clearly beneficial drugs, but they're also causing a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. And so we actually see in the early 2000s a huge increase in deaths from overdose on prescription drugs. And so we see a 98% increase in hospital visits for drug abuse and overdose um, oh. between 2004 and 2009. And Generally, over this decade, we also see more than double the deaths from overdose. Oh my gosh, and so this is insane to think about. It's become a really, really big issue in terms of that divide of, well, we want to treat people's pain, but mm-hmm. there's a reason that this started to be called then the opioid epidemic. It is an epidemic that is killing people at yep. very high rates. Yep. It's around this time that pharmaceutical companies started to create extended release opioid drugs. And the idea was that these drugs would be able to prevent abuse because they were longer acting, you get less of an acute high from them. And the key drug that they made at this point was oxycodone or oxycotton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this drug, as we know, did become a very key drug of abuse during this time, despite the fact that it was considered this extended release, long acting. It wasn't supposed to cause these effects, but it it, it did. Yeah, they were marketed as these uh, quote unquote, like safer versions of opioids that could still be used for pain, but didn't have all these negative side effects in terms of addiction and misuse. Right. And so doctors started prescribing them a whole lot. And then in 2007, There actually was a huge lawsuit in which Purdue Pharma, who was the company that created OxyContin, pleaded guilty to federal charges related to the misbranding. Mm. Um, And this included intentionally downplaying the risk of addiction, um, intentionally misleading physicians and the healthcare industry on the whole about the benefits of these drugs for chronic pain. Mm. And they ended up pleading guilty and paying over $600 million that went towards investigations and settlements in wow. regards to the addiction potential of Oxycontin. Which in um, reality is is probably a fraction of the amount of money that they made by selling this drug to oh, for all sure. of the healthcare professionals that they did sell it to. So. For sure. But a good thing that came out of this also was the FDA implementing new laws that would restrict the prescription of opioid drugs and make it a little bit more difficult for doctors to just prescribe them. It, yep. it would require special authorization to prescribe certain drugs. And this was called risk evaluation and mitigation strategies or REMS. So there continued to be this kind of push and pull in the years since then. Mm -hmm. We also have seen the rise of lots of different types of opioid drugs that didn't even exist back then, Mm -hmm. which have caused different problems. So in 2015, heroin, which had already been historically used quite a bit, actually surpassed prescription drugs as the leading cause of opioid overdose deaths. Mm -hmm. And this was known as the second wave of the opioid crisis. So we had this first wave where people were taking prescription pills from their doctors. And then as there started to be more regulation of this, the use of heroin really increased. And then around a similar time, so in 2013 originally, we saw this huge surge in synthetic opioids. So fentanyl is a drug that is a synthetically created opioid drug Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as opposed to 
what would be a more naturally occurring drug. And in 2016, fentanyl then surpassed heroin as the leading cause of overdose death. Yeah. And fentanyl yeah. it can be literally up to 50 times stronger than heroin. Yeah. yeah, this was a huge pivot point in terms of the opioid epidemic because not only was this medication surpassing heroin in terms of the overdoses, it was surpassing heroin in terms of how strong it was. And the people that had taken heroin originally didn't realize how strong it was. And so when they went to go take fentanyl, they said, okay, I'll just take the same dose and it will be fine. And then that led to a huge spike in the amount of overdoses that we saw. Right. And so this continues to be a very large issue. And between the years of 1999 and 2021, there have been nearly 645,000 people who have died from opioid overdose. So more than half a million people who Mm -hmm. have died from opioid overdose. So laws were developed that addressed overprescribing and misuse of opioids. And there was also increased funding of treatments for opioid abuse. So one example of this was the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. And this was really aimed at harm reduction for patients who may be using opioids. And this includes opportunities for needle exchange so that Mm -hmm. people who are using injection drugs are able to get clean needles. And this way, Mm -hmm. even though they may still be doing drugs, it minimizes the risk of infection. It minimizes the risk of bloodborne diseases and Mm -hmm. the spread of them. And then also this act allowed for a greater distribution of naloxone or Narcan, which is Mm -hmm. a drug that is used to prevent overdose. Yeah, so it's basically a, a rescue drug. So if you find someone unconscious, most likely from an overdose of drugs, you can spray this Narcan in their nose and it can reverse the effects of the opioids. So that has been a really right. big game changer. And you can get naloxone or Narcan for free in a lot of places. And mm-hmm. a lot of times if you go to the pharmacy and you're getting opioids, they also prescribe you Narcan because they want to make sure that you have the tools necessary to save either yourself, a family member, or a friend if that opportunity unfortunately comes to pass. And the access to this drug was largely part of these recent laws that have passed to try to improve quality of care and reduce harm that comes along with opioid Mm -hmm. prescriptions. And and kind of like you had talked about with the needle exchange, I think an important thing to touch on, which you had had mentioned, was the transmission of diseases, especially bloodborne diseases. So think about HIV, hepatitis. Mm -hmm. Those are some really detrimental diseases that people can acquire from sharing needles with each other. And we definitely have seen upticks in those diseases that kind of are correlated with the amount of IV drug use that has been going on the past few years. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because these numbers that we're talking about too, when we say over 600,000 people have died of drug overdose, that's really only looking at people who took too high of a dose and that was Mm -hmm. what killed them. It doesn't even take into account the other complications that can be caused by opioid use disorder. Yeah. So there's definitely has been progress made since this episode aired, but we do still see a lot of problems. We're still seeing upticks in overdose rates. And especially in 2020, during the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Mm -hmm. we saw really high rates of overdose deaths with an increase of more than 30% in 12 months. Wow. So it's just something that we need to continue to think about and act on as healthcare providers. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about mental health in terms of COVID-19, and I think that the mental health problem went hand in hand with the opioid use disorder problem that we saw and the surge in overdose deaths that we saw as well. Right. So going back to the episode, I want to talk a little bit about what we saw because I found it really interesting to see Alex's and Derek's reactions Mm -hmm. to this patient because Alex pretty immediately took this stance of, I don't want to do anything. Yeah, kind of wrote him off. Yeah, right. Said this patient is a drug-seeking patient and I'm not going to do anything. And Derek says to him, junkie or not, you still have to treat his pain. Mm -hmm. And he also says... The first rule of pain management is to always err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Olivia, but that isn't the attitude that I've necessarily seen with pain no. management these days. No, I don't think so. And so this is where all of these changes over time come in, mm-hmm. where we saw in the early 2000s, like I kind of mentioned, doctors were really being very cautious 
about under treating pain mm-hmm. because there were all of these new standards that were saying it's inhumane to not prescribe patients yeah. pain medications and hospitals can lose their funding if physicians are not providing adequate pain control mm-hmm. and so Derek saying the first rule of pain management is to always err on the side of caution I thought yeah. was very interesting and well, fitting fits. for the time yeah yeah definitely yeah. fits with the time and it's something like you said we really don't see that much anymore I mean I know that when I was on my clinical rotations whenever we had patients that came in, either they were a new patient in the clinic or they were a returning patient and they had some form of chronic pain, whether that be back pain like this patient, um, they had old like musculoskeletal pain, they had, you know, surgery and they were on opioids. You know, we emphasize the fact to these patients when we would go and talk to them that it's okay for them to be on these opioids for now in the short term. And when I worked with a doctor that had recently graduated, she was very, very adamant about the fact that she would work together with the patients to wean them off of the opioids eventually or switch them to another form of pain management control, whether that be a partial opioid. So like buprenorphine and methadone are really popular choices Mm -hmm. for people. And so she was saying, you know, these have much less risk of a misuse. They have much less risk of overdose. And so I want to gradually work toward getting you on that medication regimen rather than keeping you on these medications. So I think it's super interesting to see how the attitudes behind what prescription is like now or what prescribing looks like now. Yeah, well, and to talk a little bit more about that when we are looking at prescribing today, kind of like what Olivia said, generally, we do want to use opioids when they're needed. But there's a very large focus on harm reduction and dose Mm -hmm. reduction. Mm -hmm. So if a patient just has surgery, for an example, that is likely going to be an acute scenario where this might be a good candidate for an opioid drug. And generally, you want to minimize how long they're on the drug, what dose of the drug they're on. Yeah, and that you want to see them back soon so that you know how they're doing. Yes, important follow-up. And when you do go to prescribe one of these drugs via the electronic medical record, you automatically have one of these prescription drug monitoring programs pop up and it tells you this person has used this amount of controlled substances in the past. Are Mm -hmm. you sure that you want to do this? And you're required to do a review of Mm -hmm. their history and the drugs that they have previously taken and confirm that you actually want to prescribe that drug. And this Mm -hmm. is supposed to just be an extra step that ensures that you're thinking about how much does this person really need this drug and what is the best way to reduce their risk. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that's a great point, too. It really emphasizes it's it's kind of like stepping stones. Like it really just wants to make sure that you're thinking through your management plan. And a lot of times when patients are starting opioids, especially after a surgery, before the surgery, we actually go and talk to these patients at Michigan. We have a start talking form that we do with them to make sure that they know the side effects of opioids, why they're getting them prescribed, what they can do with the extra opioids, the safety precautions that they need to have with opioids. It's super important, I think, distinction from the 1900s when they were throwing them at patients haphazardly to now when we're really intentional about the medications that we give to these patients. Definitely. So I think it's a great topic, Anna, and I am honestly so happy that we got to talk about it because it really is an epidemic and something that I think as future healthcare providers, it's something that we're thinking about every time we go and see a patient who's on drugs like these. Well, and it's just so prevalent too. Like I would go as far to say, especially with the statistics that we've talked about, that there are very few people who haven't in some way been impacted by this epidemic. Mm -hmm. Whether it's somebody that they know or it's them themselves or a family member or a friend. Yeah. This is a problem that really touches everyone's lives. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So if you or anyone that you know is struggling with opioid use disorder and need someone to talk to, please feel free to reach out to the SA's National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. And we'll also put that in the episode description for you guys. But I think that was a great overview of opioid prescription and kind of how it's changed over the years and how it affected this patient's care in this episode. And again, the doctor's attitudes toward it as well, because it's so different now than it was back then. It is. And I think we all learned a lot and I'm super excited to get into the second topic. But before then, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we'll give you guys our mid-episode fun fact. Oh, yeah, we will. Enjoying the podcast? We want to hear from you. Visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us questions about anything medicine in Grey's Anatomy. You can also follow our socials, stay up to date on the latest Myth vs. Med events, 
and join our email list from our website or Linktree at linktr.ee slash mythvsmedpod. You can also help support this podcast along with medical and scientific research by making a donation. Back to the show. All right, we're back and I'm here with our mid-episode fun fact. Let's hear it. Okay, if you're ever wondering how they make the organs and blood and everything that you see in this show look so real, we're here to tell you. <laughs> and it turns out they're actually made from some pretty nasty stuff. Oops. Um, so yeah, so this came from Sarah Drew, who played April Kempner on the series, who we will meet later in the show. But she said that they actually used cow organs and oh. fake blood that was made out of chicken fat and red gelatin. Oh, oh my gosh. So, like, imagine cow guts and then uh. also some chicken guts and then, like, mix that with some, like, red jello and just oh, stick it gosh. all in there. I and sh- would not want to come to work. <laughs> no, thank you. To be honest, it sounds grosser than real. What we it see does. in real life. I'd much rather, rather a real surgery. Yeah, I'd much rather a real surgery than to stick my hands in cow organs and yeah, chicken well, fat and jello. Saw- Disgusting. Disgusting. So there is a quote from Sarah Drew, and she actually said that the smell was repulsive and made them all gag. That is not surprising at all. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That was a great fun fact, though, and something that I will not be able to get out of my head for quite a while, I'm pretty sure. So thank you for that. I wish I could. I wish I could. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, let's talk about another gory surgery that we see in this episode. I'm sure they used a cow heart for this one. So this is the main surgery that we see at the beginning of the show that Meredith is in on with Dr. Burke. And so basically Meredith is holding this heart in her hand. Burke is doing all the fancy stuff. So Dr. Burke is performing what we call a cabbage or coronary artery bypass graft surgery, which is basically a surgery to help with blockage of what we call the coronary arteries. And these are vessels that supply the heart with blood. And so blockage of these vessels can be caused by lots of things like high blood pressure, plaques in your arteries, smoking. So lots of different risk factors, but Mm -hmm. you can get lots of symptoms from not having adequate blood supply to your heart. So you can have some chest pain, shortness of breath or difficulty breathing. You can just feel really tired, feel lightheaded, get sweaty. You can have like a racing heart, high blood pressure. So there's lots of different symptoms that you might have with this and it all correlates with the severity of the blockage in your heart. And so usually these big surgeries, because this is a really big surgery, is generally recommended when there are really severe blockages in the heart or previous interventions or treatments haven't worked. And so the main one that we think of, um, if it has failed to go to cabbage, is going to be a percutaneous coronary intervention, which is basically a fancy way of saying they stick a little wire all the way up from your leg, all the way up to your heart, and clear blockages without cutting you open. For sure. And so when you see someone who has a heart attack coming into the hospital, Mm -hmm. they will likely be undergoing one of these two procedures. So if they're Mm -hmm. able to do the percutaneous coronary intervention, they will but there are certain times when that's just not possible and that's when you would do a cabbage so Olivia's going to tell us a little bit more about when this would happen oh yes yeah so really the the big indications for this surgery again is if you've failed the previous intervention that you've tried so that kind of wire up the leg or if you have one of the main vessels in your heart greater than 50% stenosed is what we call it, but basically blocked, Um, or if there's multiple vessels involved in the heart that are causing you problems. And so in this patient, we didn't actually know what she was experiencing, but it sounded like she was having chest pain or what we call angina. And this was the reason for the procedure. Even though she was on all these medications to help, nothing was really working for her. And so this was kind of the next step for her. So I thought it would be interesting to go over how the surgery actually worked because it's really fascinating to me and it's actually cool because we saw Bert kind of doing some of these steps in the surgeries. So the main thing that you start with is getting into this patient's chest cavity. So basically cutting them open and exposing their heart. You hook them up to something called a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. Then usually an assistant or a specialized team member will harvest vessels from another part of your body. So usually this is from a big vein in your leg and it's so it's kind of like sci-fi. They they go it's and they really cut cool that out. Right? They go, they cut that out, they bring it up to the heart, and then they attach it up there. But before they can do that, they have to medically stop the heart. So the heart beats on its own without us 
controlling it. And so for the heart to stop, we use a pharmacological therapy called, it's termed cardioplegia, which basically it's a medication that contains lots of potassium that acts to temporarily stop or arrest the heart. And so that's why you're hooked up to this bypass machine so that you can actually get blood flow to the rest of your body while they're stopping your heart and working on it. Right. Yeah. So the next step, which is what Burke would do, would take that vessel from down below from the leg and basically attach it or graft it to the ends of the coronary vessels that are blocked. And this is, as you can imagine, super tedious work. So when Meredith is holding this heart, she she moves at some point, right? She kind of like it's, it's twitches she's falling asleep. when she nods. Yeah, like she nods off. She squeezes the heart and moves the heart. And Burke's like, Dr. Gray, what are you doing? He goes, what was that? She's like, she goes, oh, nothing. She goes, oh, I, I slipped. Sorry. What was that, Dr. Gray? Sorry, it slipped. My hands. It's okay. I'm done. I slipped. I slipped. And so this is a really tenuous point in the procedure because you want to make sure that you're grafting them correctly and you're not nicking anything that you shouldn't. And so for Meredith to fall asleep is just, I don't know, Classic. it's kind of mind-blowing. But after the vessels have been connected, the cardioplegia or the medication is washed out of the heart and the heart begins beating again. And so this is the point in the show where Meredith kind of had a freak out moment because Miss Patterson's heart didn't start beating right away after she gave it that little bitty squeeze earlier when she nodded off. And so after the heart does start beating again on its own, which it did in this patient, the surgeon, so Burke, would then just look to make sure that blood is flowing correctly in the new vessels, there's no signs of bleeding, that everything looks good. And then they close up the chest wall and patients take it to the ICU or the intensive care unit for follow-up. And this is where Miss Patterson deteriorated after surgery. So after surgery is done, some complications that we're looking out for, and these are all dependent on different risk factors, but some common ones that we see are stroke, wound infection, which is a cause of post-op fever, if you guys remember from our first episode. Mm -hmm. You can have graft failure, so the vein that you use isn't working to help supply blood to the heart. You can have arrhythmias, so if you guys have heard of atrial fibrillation, and that's usually within the first couple days, and that's the most common complication with this surgery. And then, of course, there's a risk of death with this surgery as well. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what went wrong in this particular case, it's not something that you would think of as a run-of-the-mill complication. It was actually the patient's heart wall had gotten a big hole in it or had ruptured. So if you remember, at the end of the case, we see Meredith in the OR by herself after Burke has left, and she looks down at her glove and sees that she has poked her finger through the glove, which on one hand, she's nervous because, one, that's breaking the sterile field, and if you ever poke through your glove, you need to notify everyone right away because there's risk of infecting the patient, infecting yourself. And then she's also worried because she's wondering if, oh crap, when I nodded off and kind of squeezed the heart a little bit, did I break through my glove enough? And then also break through the heart and cause some kind of issue down the road. So this brings up one of the main ethical scenarios in this episode, which is Meredith breaking this sterile field slash possibly puncturing the heart and then not telling anyone about it and not reporting it. This is huge. (laughs) Even if you are not even touching the patient, Mm -hmm. in the same way that we talked about the importance of scrubbing in and keeping Uh your sterile field... We learned right away, if you break a glove, you immediately tell someone. It is, like, the most important thing that you can do is to tell someone and change your glove. You cannot be operating with your hand out. Absolutely. And we even have special gloves for this. They're called indicator gloves, which are usually when we're in surgery, we wear two pairs of gloves. So one is an underglove and one is an overglove. And so when you, in theory, puncture the overglove... It lets air in, lets moisture in, and then it basically turns the inner glove a really bright color so that you can see that, oh, crap, I punctured my glove. I need to change my gloves. It also gives you an extra layer of protection underneath it your does. glove. So that if it does. you puncture one glove, you still have something else protecting you and you have time to change your glove and still be sterile. Yeah, exactly. And so in this case, we saw Meredith break her glove. She kind of goes about her day like nothing's wrong. She's talking to George about it in the elevator. And I could not believe... George is enabling. He's like, you don't need to tell them anything. He's fine, right? There's no worry. She's doing great after surgery. There's been no complications. You need to tell the team. (laughs) That's just not a thing. Agreed. And I had this quote, too, from later in the episode, where then after she tells everyone, Christina says, what were you thinking telling Brooke? So stupid. And George goes, I told her not to. I could get kicked out of the program. 
I could, right? You're not getting kicked out. Patterson's just gonna sue. Patterson is not going to sue, and you're not getting kicked out. How are you thinking? Telling Burke? I'm so stupid. I told her not to. And you're like, excuse me? I'm like, <laughs> why are you guys all on board with us? This is something that we take so seriously when it comes to patient safety and provider safety too. And so to break sterile field in a big surgery like this is a really big deal. And so the fact that all of her classmates were kind of egging her on and saying, oh, we're, it's fine. It's fine. You don't need to tell anyone. Just Crazy. sweep it under the rug. Just go about your day is insane. These interns are so unhinged. Right? Aren't they? I was like, okay. But not at the time that she did. No. So, you know, no. Meredith, please listen listen to your gut and go tell someone. She's taking care of the patient. Patient's not doing well. Bert comes back. He's like, what the heck is happening? She's like, I don't know. I don't know. Her, the husband's there. He's obviously freaking out for good reason. And Meredith turns to Burke and goes, I think I may have punctured her heart. I broke my glove. <laughs> and I was so dumbfounded i was uh -huh. i was astonished i said meredith there were literally 20 other opportunities for you to say something but not in front of the patient's and husband Burke, please Burke says this to her when they're in the or he says you had every opportunity to say something yes literally every opportunity and yes it's intimidating and yes you feel like you screwed up and in this case it was her fault like she did screw up but you still have to come to grips with what you did and keep the well-being of your patient in mind instead of kind of saving your own butt, which is what she was trying to do in this case. Yeah, and I think an important thing too in this is knowing what you need to do to keep rapport with a patient and also not shouting things out that you're not certain of for the sake of mm -hmm. keeping said rapport. Because yeah. for the same reason of, for example, if I was taking care of a patient as a medical student and I go and do an exam on a patient and I see something that I think is not normal, uh -huh. I don't jump to telling this patient, oh my goodness, I think there's something abnormal that I'm really worried uh -huh. about. I'm going to first go back to my resident or go back to my attending and say, I think I found this thing. Can yeah. you come take a look at it? We're going to talk about this privately. If there's a major diagnosis yeah. that's going to be made, we're going to talk to the patient about that in an appropriate way. And yeah. Meredith, in this case, did do something wrong. But also, in the end, the thing she did wrong was not the thing that hurt the patient. And so yeah. by yelling that out in front of the patient, she totally ruined the rapport with his patient's husband mm -hmm. to the point of him not even wanting to talk to her. Yeah. This wasn't something that he really needed to get involved with. The issue mm -hmm. of the sterile field and all of the legal stuff that we'll talk about that goes along with that was an issue. But now she has this husband convinced that she did something really detrimental that could be killing his wife. And he, she goes outside and, and trying wants, to apologize to him. Wants, yeah. And he says, he says, I won't talk to you. And Meredith is trying to ask the husband questions about her history which are very important. So for instance, for the, the patient's loss, health. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She needs to get this information so that they can make their next steps and actually figure out what's going on with her. And now mm -hmm. because of the choice that she's made, she can't get that information because the husband doesn't yeah. trust her. Exactly. And can we also talk about the fact that Burke literally makes Meredith go and talk to the patient by herself after literally being the one to blurt this out in front of him while there's a threat of a lawsuit above the hospital's head, pretty sure they wouldn't want an intern handling this interaction. It was a similar thing to in one of the first episodes. Oh, and George. Make, yeah, Burke makes George go and apologize for promising that a patient was going to yes. live when he wasn't even in the room when the surgery happened. Exactly. All kinds of problems with Burke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so what ends up happening is that they have this big meeting where there's a lawyer involved, Richard's there, Meredith's there, Burke is there, and... You know, at the end of the day, they realized that it wasn't Meredith's fault that the patient, in fact, had a really profound weight loss that left her heart susceptible to damage due to the loss of muscle mass that she sustained during this rapid weight loss. And so in the end, it wasn't Meredith's fault, but we still run into the situation of her blurting this out in front of the patient, making the patient want to sue the hospital, ruining the rapport with the patient, ruining probably her trust with Burke a little bit and yeah. other people in the hospital because they're probably thinking, okay if she didn't tell me this what else has she not told me slash is she gonna do this again type of thing right so i think it was a really big deal for meredith's i think career career and yeah. this episode because she also talked about oh my god they're gonna kick me out like i'm gonna have to leave meredith also even though it didn't impact the patient in the end this was still a pretty major mess up in that 
She may yeah. have been holding the heart with like an ungloved hand. Imagine somebody holding your heart with their bare hand and, and with like their bare not hand. Gloved, yeah, not sterile. Not that's it's, recipe for disaster. Yeah, it is. She's even though she got lucky and that the complications that happened were not her fault. This was still a really dangerous thing that she did, and there still have to be consequences for that. Definitely, definitely. And so, kind of talking about the consequences when she was worried about the threat of her being asked to leave the program. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about the attrition rates in residency programs across the country. This is from 2023 data. Attrition in the entire cohort across all surgical programs is 4.8%. So this is all of the residency specialties. So family medicine, surgery, psychiatry, neurology. So all of the different subspecialties. Yeah. And the rate in the surgical residency program alone was 6.7%, so much higher. And the non-surgical residency programs was 4.4%, so much lower. So the attrition rates were associated with sex, race, older age at the start of residency, residency type, and then program location. Mm. But what I want to touch on is the inequities between the underrepresented in medicine groups and their attrition rates, and then women and their attrition rates. So female gender surgical training, and underrepresented in medicine status were all associated with higher attrition rates. And it's crazy, too, because only 14.2% of these residents are identifying themselves as underrepresented in medicine, yet they make up a really big percentage of the people who are being asked to leave programs or are leaving the programs. Definitely. So I just think it's something important to touch on, and I think it'll be interesting to see how these trends kind of changed throughout the years because I think there has been really big pushes for an increase in diversity in their residency programs and kind of how to keep residents happy and healthy and staying in the program. This actually ties back to what we talked about in the first episode with Richard's speech when he says, I don't remember exactly how many, but he says, some of you are going to be asked to leave. And we were like, "Mm mm-hmm. Really? Like, excuse me? <laughs> and I mean, even so, with the rates that Olivia just gave, overestimated. Well, he a little was bit. saying a quarter of the class that he was saying, yeah, we're gonna ask to leave, and <laughs> okay, that's just no. <laughs> all right, Richard, whatever you say. <laughs> but I think that was really all I had to talk about in terms of the cabbage patient and the heart repair and the ethics that went along with it. I think there were a lot of things that Meredith won did wrong, but then two had the opportunities to redeem herself and didn't take the opportunity. But at the end of the day, it seemed to all work out in her favor, question mark. And and then we go along with the rest of the episode. So, Oh, yeah. But that's not the end of our ethical dilemmas. No, I was going to say this really brings me to a similarly problematic ethical dilemma, which was as we learn, Burke left this towel inside of a patient during a surgery. Burke. Does this qualify as things Burke does that he's not qualified for? Yeah. <laughs> you mean he's not qualified to leave a towel in someone? Is anyone qualified um, to leave a towel in someone? Know, I'm going to go with no on that one. <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, Christina basically finds out that Burke was the one back in 2000 who left this towel in the patient that has caused her all these problems she gives the form to bailey bailey talks to burke about it it seems like he's gonna kind of sweep it under the rug but then during this big meeting with the chief and meredith and the lawyer he blurts out oh yep you know five years ago i love his stance did you see how he was like sitting this whole time he had his fingertips i don't even know what i would call it i feel like this is just another example of him trying to make himself seem more sophisticated than he is (laughs) (laughs) same with him calling biopsies biopsies Biopsies. I can just see him with his hands and his little triangle going. A little posture. Oh, yes, the biopsy. The biopsy. But anyways, he comes clean that he was in fact the one that left the towel in yeah. this woman five years ago and that doctors need a more safe space to, I guess, own up to their mistake. More of a safe space to speak up when they've done something like Meredith has done or like Burke has done without the fear of being reprimanded to an extent that would basically ruin your career. Yeah, and I thought that was a really interesting point. He says, we have to be able to speak up without fear of retribution or everyone suffers. And the thing is, if we're judging on what Meredith did here and looking at what he did, Mm -hmm. I would agree if every mistake you make could end your career, that's a problem. But I also think it's important to recognize that there is retribution for your mistakes. We just keep on seeing everybody on the show doing really appalling things without consequences. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, neither of them would have had nearly as much retribution if they had spoke up. Yeah. The reason that Meredith is getting these consequences now is because she chose not to say anything. But had Meredith spoken up at the beginning when she realized her glove was ripped, she would say, hey, my glove ripped. They'd give her a new glove. They'd Mm -hmm. make sure the patient was okay. They'd 
take extra they do all their double checks yeah right there wouldn't be any retribution that would have been following protocol and so really in this case the reason that Meredith's career is at risk is because she didn't speak up not because she did so the fact that Burke is saying the reason we're not speaking up is because of this fear I think Mm -hmm. it just misses the mark a little bit yeah yeah I think that's true he was basically saying I think this is the right time to speak up about this but like was it really (laughs) with a lawyer in the room I I was very taken aback this could be a huge problem yeah Richard was probably like what the heck Bert keep your mouth shut stop it not with the lawyers here right and instead everybody (laughs) reacted as if oh my gosh this inspirational man they were like we love it we know we understand He literally just admitted to a huge error. Speaking with this lawyer who's all worried about the medical malpractice and the liability of the hospital. Talk about liability for the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Especially with this patient who outwardly expressed how upset she was that this had happened. I felt so bad for her. You don't think that she's now going to sue? I know. And, like, this is why we have towel counts before closing up Mm -hmm. patients, guys. Like, we literally have scrub nurses in the OR that are making sure that everything that they hand us they get back and that it's one not in our hands it's not on the floor it's not in the patient and so when we're doing these double checks they do these every single surgery and they do them very religiously and they do them at least twice to make sure that they have the correct count Uh so that things like this don't happen and I think this is a real life scenario this isn't something that never happens in medicine I think that it happens less than it used to but I was going to say, also, speaking of this patient, I want to talk about the smoking cessation conversation that George had with this patient. Because Weber said point blank, before George goes in, don't bother talking about smoking cessation. She already feels bad enough. Yeah, like she's tried. And then what does George do? Probably, this is his quote, ready? She's like, oh, I haven't been feeling better, da-da-da. He goes, (laughs) probably would have been a good idea to quit smoking. (laughs) George! George! What did they just tell you? One, you brought it up. Do not address it like this. When we're talking to patients, especially about smoking cessation, which is, I think, one of the hardest habits to kick for a lot of patients, Definitely. is that you need to come from a place of non-judgment. Like, they need to feel like they're not being judged for their habit, that they're not being crucified for what they're doing. And George just goes, probably would have been a good idea to quit smoking. I'm like, George! Literally. Well, I mean, this goes along with what we talked about with opioid addiction today. Mm-hmm. Nicotine is highly addictive. Yeah. Quitting smoking is a very hard to do. And addiction is a disease Mm -hmm. and you need to treat your patients with respect the same you would for any disease. Mm -hmm. And if you want to motivate them to quit and to get the help you need, you're not going to be able to do that if they think that you're out here on your high horse judging them. Absolutely not. So I just wanted to touch on that because I thought it was ridiculous. She's in the hospital for a big surgery and he goes, "Mm -hmm, you probably should stop smoking. All right, George. (laughs) All right. So I think that kind of ends the ethical dilemmas we had to talk about, but we had some really good end takeaways and relatable moments from the show that we're excited to talk to you guys about. Definitely. I wanted to bring up, there was this whole underlying plot point in this show, which was that Izzy is throwing a party at Meredith's house for her boyfriend who's coming into town. She wants her boyfriend to meet all her friends. And first of all, she keeps on inviting more people to this party. More people more people. George and Christina are both like, Izzy, you can't keep inviting people. George especially. George is having a heart attack. (laughs) So George is looking out for Meredith because he's in love with her, obviously. Yes, yes. And so he's saying, did you check this with Meredith? Don't invite more people. Don't invite more people. Christina, on the other hand, is just worried about her social status. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Can I read the quote? I love this quote so much. (laughs) Christina goes, quote, jocks only, surgery, trauma, plastics. It's like, who else did you invite? And Izzy goes, oh, just some people from Peds. She goes, the, the wait, preschoolers? She goes, the preschoolers? She goes, next you're going to tell me you invited the shrinks. Who else did you invite? Izzy, we said the list was jocks only, surgery, trauma, plastics. Who else? Just some people from Peds. You invited the preschoolers to Meredith's house. Next thing you'll say that you invited the shrinks. She invited mental defects. This party is DOA. Oh, God. (laughs) Which, if you're wondering, DOA is dead on arrival. Yes, yes. So basically, Izzy throws this big old party, and then 
proceeds not to go to it because she decides that she wants to stay in the hospital and take care of this patient. Which, like, good on her, but also her boyfriend's flying in from who knows where, and he's expecting her to be at this party. She's like, no, I want to stay at the hospital. So. Well, and also she never actually talked to Meredith about it, and Meredith comes home from work she after this horrible day. There's a hundred people at her house drinking oh, yeah. and partying. Oh, my and, gosh. Oh, my God. Well, and so what I really wanted to talk about with Izzy in this is – Oh, it can be very difficult to, A, find work-life balance. And this Mm -hmm. is something that she talks about with her patient in this episode. Mm -hmm. And B, kind of the difficulties with maintaining relationships with people in your life who aren't in medicine Mm -hmm. and who don't necessarily understand just what you're going through in the hospital every day. Exactly. I'm a very big advocate for work-life balance. And I love Izzy's quote at the beginning of the episode talking to her patient. She says, I'm just one of those people who thought you could have both, referring to a good work-life and a good life-life. And this is something that I really strive for and something that I really think of when I'm thinking about my future career. And so I thought it was really cool to see Izzy thinking about that. But in the end, it seems like she's much more focused on the work. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so her boyfriend comes to the hospital after realizing that she's not at the party. And she says to him, my patients just have to come first. And he says, yeah, well, I just flew across the entire country and there's 100 people at your house. Mm -hmm. And Izzy says, 100 people that know what I do all day and I shouldn't have to apologize for that. Yeah, yeah. And I have, I think there's a couple things we can unpack here. Mm -hmm. The first being that I actually don't think the boyfriend's being that unreasonable. Mm -hmm. Like, it would be one thing if he was upset because he was saying, I flew across the country and now you're at work instead of being with me. Yeah. But... I sort of agree. Why did she invite 100 people All, to her house yeah. instead of hanging out with him? And Christina, yeah. this whole episode is like, oh, he must be bad in bed. That's why you're yeah. avoiding being alone with him. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, what she says, I want him to meet all my friends. But I said, the, all these hundred people are not your friends. These are just people from the hospital. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, and then she's trying to make this point of, oh, well, these people know what I go through every day and I shouldn't have to apologize for mm-hmm. that. But I don't think he was asking her to apologize for that. He was asking no. her to just hang out with him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she's like, you didn't much care when my friends were models. And he's like, well, then you actually showed up to the party. Right. From his standpoint, I think he's saying... I don't think you understand how much it means to me to fly across the country just to see you, and then I show up and you have this big party going on. Well, and so then he says, I should just go. I'll call you. And I'm wondering, where is this man even going to go? He just flew across the country. And then... Not Meredith's house, that's for sure. Nope. And then in response... What does Izzy do? Izzy looks at him longly, and you could just see, like, a switch flip. And she just turns around and just walks right back into the hospital. I'm Why sorry. Why is she going back to work? Why I'm is sorry. she going back? Who in their right mind would go back to the hospital after finishing <laughs> a shift? I don't know. I think that her and her boyfriend just had different priorities. And like you said, it can be really tough to be in a significant relation with someone. It is really difficult to express what you're doing what your feelings about your work are to someone who hasn't experienced it and doesn't feel that same, I guess, drive is what I would call it. And also just the intensity, the intensity of the emotions that you experience when everything is life and death is something that is hard to put into words. And it's hard for other people to grasp. Yeah. But I think that I think both you and I are lucky in the fact that I think we both come from places of really striving for that work-life balance. I think the important thing also is we, as the person in medicine, have a big role in that. It's not just like, oh, this is so hard, nobody understands me because I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. It's being patient with people who don't realize what you're going through and also being able to prioritize the important relationships in your life despite what you're going through. Absolutely. And Izzy, who throws a party and then bails on said party and invites her boyfriend into town to then not see him at all, yeah, is not no, her no. doing that. Even in this position where the boyfriend didn't understand what she was going through, that doesn't take away her responsibility in mm-hmm. maintaining her relationships. Absolutely. So speaking of kind of coming to grips with how you have to balance your life when you get to this point in your training and like being an adult meredith has some really relatable quotes that she oh my gosh she does says this episode and i think that those are important to touch on (laughs) so for sure and we will play this for you but she says adults have to be places and do things and earn a living and pay rent adults have to be places and do things and earn a living and pay the rent And if you're training to be a surgeon, holding a human heart in your hands? Hello, talk about responsibility. And she later says to Derek, We're adults. When did that happen? 
And how do we make it stop? Yeah. And and this is all after she had this big kerfuffle with the surgery. She's all freaked out. She had this big meeting with the chief and Burke and the lawyer. And she walks past Derek. Derek's like, hey, what's up? And she's like, we're adults. And he's like, what What did you, what? <laughs> How do we make it stop? I know. So it, it is tough because you're kind of thrown into this arena of making decisions and seeing patients and having all this responsibility. And it kind of does feel like it happens overnight. It does. And I mean, honestly, this is something that I think anybody can relate to around Mm -hmm. our age or who has been our age. Yeah. Even not in medicine, really in any career, you go from being a kid and maybe you're in school or you're doing something else. And then you somehow end up in this position where Mm -hmm. you do have to earn a living and pay rent and go to work and have responsibility for yourself Mm -hmm. and... In most jobs, you have some kind of responsibility for other people as well. Yeah. And then you come home and you have to upkeep your home and uh-huh. you have to make meals for yourself and, and you, you have, have to, to and you have to fix fix things around <laughs> the house things. and you have to do all these things and oh it's just God. stuff that you don't always think about and when you you're, don't and and when you have other things going on in your professional life, it's hard to keep on top of everything that you have to do. So I think that was the point that Meredith was trying to make. Well, and not to mention keeping up with your social life and all of your relationships, which we see as you struggle with. And that we see Meredith not so struggle with as Derek comes to the party, which ballsy of Derek, first of all, to come to Meredith's party, just standing in front of the house. They have a little car sesh. And then Bailey (laughs) walks right up to the window, knocks on the door. She's like, excuse me, you're blocking my way out of the driveway. The first time I watched that episode, I remembered the like heart drop that I had. I was like, oh, no they're screwed they are absolutely screwed oh my gosh i want to end this episode with something that was very important to me all right and that was that we got our very first twisted sister dance party yes christina (laughs) yells out merit baby you made it (laughs) christina is trash she is dancing and it's just so out of character for what we've seen so far it is so funny and then and then merit is just like you know what screw it i've had a long day give me the tequila and i'm going up and dancing with her I so love it. we love it. So at the end of the day, we see them having fun and letting loose after really tough days in the hospital. Well, and thanks to all of you guys, our amazing listeners, we have the results of our poll that oh, we said do. that if we were Meredith and Christina, apparently I am Meredith and Olivia's Christina. <laughs> and I think, Olivia, we need to go have a dance party. I think we do. My place, 10 o'clock. Attire is scrubs. I'll bring tequila. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to our episode this week, and we hope that you have a little dance party of your own. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We hope you leave knowing more than you did before about what is myth and what is medicine. If you're curious about where we're getting our information, you can check out our sources in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform and share it with friends. Don't forget to visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us a question, follow our socials, and subscribe to our email list or make a donation. We appreciate your support and we hope you continue to follow along with us on this journey.